Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we are here to fix SLP. We are discussing the biggest challenges that are currently holding back the field of speech-language pathology. We present the issues with facts and invite you to be part of joining our movement to make things better, one conversation at a time. Let's fix SLP. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Fix SLP podcast. Um, I'm Megan, and Jeanette is unable to join us today, but we do have a special guest, Chantel, with your uh, with us here today um, in Australia, bright and early in the morning for her before she heads to work. Thank you for taking the time to be here. No worries. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Yeah, my name's Chantel. Uh, I'm a speech pathologist. I've been working for over 13 years now. Um, I mainly work or have mainly worked with adults in rehabilitation. So at the moment, I'm a senior speech pathologist at an outpatient neurological clinic. Uh, But most of my work has been in rehabilitation or community-based settings. Awesome. Okay. And the reason we're talking to you, you're the first in what we hope to be a series of talking to SLPs from all around the world, because Mm -hmm. we want to learn how other countries regulate the field of speech pathology. And I am going to sound, I always sound like a very egotistical, like braggy (laughs) person when I say this, but I have had the privilege of traveling to all seven continents in my life. And I had a career before speech pathology. And so a lot of that travel was work-related. And so because it was work-related, I got to see how different governments work and how different systems work. And I lived abroad when George Bush was president, which was not a super lovely time to be living (laughs) abroad And I remember when Obama got elected, I was getting like personally congratulated in the grocery store that we had accomplished that feat. (laughs) And like all of that travel has really made me aware that like I grew up in a very U.S. centric system. Like when we grow up in Mm -hmm. this country, we kind of perceive ourselves to be better than everybody else. And we perceive that the way we're doing things is like the only way to do things. When in reality, there are so many other ways to do things. And the United States has a lot to learn from other countries. Um, And you don't have to look far to realize that from our medical system to our education system. Like we have a lot of broken Mm -hmm. systems that are really not working. And so... That's what, I mean, that's kind of what inspired me to reach out to people from different countries just to talk about how speech pathology is regulated because believe it or not, ASHA is not an international regulatory body. Like um, in Australia, you have Speech Pathology Australia, right? Yep. Can you, and that's kind of like for better or lack of a better way to phrase it, that's like the equivalent of ASHA for... Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about Speech Pathology Australia? Yeah. um, So Speech Pathology Australia, I think there are about um, 14,000 members of Speech Pathology Australia. Um, And yes, so it's our national body. Um, 
it's not uh, mandatory to be a member of Speech Pathology Australia, so it is optional. Um, and I've sort of, I've had membership over the years and then I've dropped membership over the years. And I think it's quite dependent on the type of role that you have as to how much benefit you probably get from the association. Um, but I think everything else is fairly similar. So they're the ones that will put out all the policies and procedures. They'll host a number of professional development events. Um, and obviously they're the people that we go to when we have um, questions related to speech pathology. Do you know, and I can Google it really quickly, do you know how mm -hmm. many speech pathologists are in Australia? I tried my hardest to find that, oh, couldn't okay. get a figure. Um, the best I found was that um, Speech Pathology Australia estimates that 70% of speech pathologists are members and they currently have about 14,000 members. So that says there's about 20,000 speech pathologists in Australia. Okay. So they're doing really well. If it's a, Is it 100% voluntary? Or do you have to be a member to be, because they sell a certification as well, right? Yeah, so I started looking into that in preparation for this and I did learn some new information. So it looks like the, so we have what's called um, CPSP status, which is Certified Practicing Speech Pathologist. So that's the certification and it seems to kind of be equivalent to your CCCs. Um it came, I think the terminology came in July 2022, but before that it was known as um, the self, the professional self-regulation framework. So it's quite similar. Um, I've got a list of a few of the, the differences here, but they took on the term of certification and sort of changed it just recently. Um, the tricky thing is, although it says that, yeah, it is optional to be a member, you do need to have certified practicing status if you're working with a lot of the major funding bodies. Um, now, this is where I said earlier, it really depends what kind of role you have. So, for example, at the moment I'm working in a hospital system, I don't need to have the certified practicing status because everyone that I see is covered by public health. So I think at a guess, maybe 50% of us in the hospital have membership. And I think there's about 25 species in the hospital that I work at. Um, but if you're working anywhere else where a large portion or most of the speech pathologists are working out in the community um, and working with clients who have other funding, um, a number of those um, funding bodies state that you do need to have certified practicing status in order to see these clients. So in turn, a lot of jobs will actually advertise and say that you need to have certified practicing um, status as a therapist. So, and how much, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go. How much does it cost for the, that certification? Uh, so it costs $572 if you're a member of Speech Pathology Australia. Um, so that's, $572 is for the membership itself. Um, and then if you want to have the certified practicing um, status, it's not any extra, but you just have to demonstrate that you're meeting the requirements. Um, so the new information I actually found out, which I didn't know, was that you can be a certified practicing speech pathologist without being a member of Speech Pathology Australia. <laughs> that was new information to me. Um, so I, yeah. I put that on my stories 
yesterday afternoon just to ask, you know, how many speech pathologists in Australia realise that you can have this status without being a member? Um, I don't have a huge account, so I think there's about 70 people who have voted, but 60% of people didn't actually know that, um, which is interesting. So I don't think it's common yeah. knowledge that speech pathologists don't realise, but the funny thing is that when I jumped on the website just to find out um, how much it would cost, it actually costs more if you're not a member. Um, so it costs $682 if you want to be, if you want that status and you're not a member of Speech Pathology Australia. So I, I tried to get an answer as to why and where the extra money is going. I couldn't get an answer. So I'm just waiting on someone to get back to me from the association because I spoke to a couple of people just to confirm, is that correct? $682 yeah. and they confirmed. Yeah, it was. And that's an annual fee. You have to pay that every year. Correct. Ouch. Yep. Yes, it's a lot. Yep. Is it common for employers to cover that cost or no? No, I don't know of any employers who have ever covered that cost. Okay, so you have this certification that you have to have to basically, I mean, would you call it like billing certain insurance or... Yeah, yeah. So in Australia, I'm not sure if you've heard about the, the NDIS, which is a nas National Disability Insurance Scheme. It's not actually an okay, insurance Talk to company. me like I know nothing about it because I don't. And I'm sure a lot of people Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the NDIS, um, I think it supports about 500,000 Australians with a disability. And essentially anyone under the age of 65 who has a permanent disability is eligible for these supports. So this covers things like um, uh, therapies that the client will need. It covers things like um, disability accommodation. Uh, it covers things like day programs, support workers to come out and take clients into the community, things like that, mealtime aids, equipment, communication devices. Um, so essentially this is really where the bulk of funding comes from um, for the clients that we see under the age of 65. So I know in the last job I worked, which is in pri private practice, about 90% of our caseload was funded by the NDIS. Um, so, and that's yeah, government that's funded. So for Americans listening, that would be like if Medicaid didn't have an income cap and it was available to everybody under the age of 65 and like you would just, if you qualify for services, you would receive them from Correct. Yes. government. Okay. Yeah. So we have Medicare as well, but that's separate. So if okay. um, clients need something that's health related, um, they can still access the public system. Uh, but this is for supports that are needed directly related to their disability. Um, so, yeah, we okay. have both. Okay. Um, so, yes, this... Um, this funding body requires um, that a speech pathologist, in order to be able to um, bill um, the NDIS, they need to have certified practicing status. Okay. And then do you have different licenses for the different provinces? Uh, no, it's the same all around Australia. I think because our population is so small uh, compared to in America. So I think we're about 26 million in the entire country, which I don't know, might be equivalent to some of your states. I'm not sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think California may be way off, but I think California has like 40 million. Okay. Yeah. So California's got more people than all of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... 
and then also speech sorry i'm gonna plug in my laptop speech pathology no, in australia accredits universities right so they're similar to asha in that way in that they are a membership body and they sell a certification and they accredit universities right oh i'm not actually sure about that one megan i can see if okay. i can quickly find the answer to that but uh, okay, so yeah, it says so... every university program has points of difference, but all programs must meet the Speech Pathology Australia accreditation standards for graduating students to be eligible for a membership of Speech Pathology Australia. Yep. Yep. Okay. And what kind of just tell us about your grad school experience. Did mm -hmm. you have to take an exam? Did you have to complete like any sort of supervised on the job training before you were fully certified like just walk us through like if you were an undergraduate student and you were interested in becoming a speech pathologist what are all the steps in australia to do that yep um so where we can either do speech pathology as a bachelor or a master's um so back when I graduated um I did a bachelor so that's just four years it's an undergraduate program and it's four years of speech pathology I think master's programs are becoming more um I think there's more master's programs now so um you do your undergraduate which could be maybe three or four years and then you do the two-year master's program so okay. can um, I interrupt you yes <laughs> so What's the benefit of having a master's program or a master's degree in Australia? I think you might start out on a slightly higher salary if you have a master's degree as opposed to a bachelor. Slightly higher, like maybe $10,000 more? Uh, a few dollars an hour more. A couple of dollars an hour more, more okay. I think. So not, a, not yeah. a huge difference. Okay. Not huge, yeah. Um. So my experience, yes, we do exams throughout the whole program, um, you know, with each subject or unit that we're studying. So we're usually studying eight units per year. That's for a bachelor. Um, and the exams that you're taking, sorry, I'm going to keep interrupting. Yeah. Are, no they, are they universal exams that everybody takes no matter what program you're in or do the professors write the exams? Uh, I think the professors write the exams, so they would be different okay. depending on what university you're going to. Yep. Okay. Um, and we also do clinical placements within the program as well. So for a bachelor program, you might do some observation placements in the first year and then perhaps from second year you might be doing some hands-on stuff. Um, so we get marked... Uh, according to each placement. And there are three different types of placements. You have novice, intermediate, and then entry level. Um, and you get a mix of pediatric and adult placements. You need to do a certain number of each. And we get marked on those. We need to pass those placements in order to um, get our degree. And the, the clinical supervisors will use something called the competence What's it called? I know the shorthand, which is CBOS. Um, I think it's a competency-based occupational standards. I have mm -hmm. it here. Um, and so that will assess a therapist um, or student at the time, different areas of competency. So things like um, 
assessment, ability to deliver intervention, lifelong learning, professional practice, things like that. And you need to hit a certain level and be entry level for you to pass and be considered competent and and get your degree. And my understanding, and tell me just from what you remember, Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of conversation happening right now about competency-based training and how Australia is leading the way and they have these competency-based standards. And someone is, was explaining to me that like in the U.S., you have to rate people like on Calypso, mm-hmm. there's this rating system. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or something. I don't know. Um, but then in Australia, there's like a line and like you, they literally like put a mark on the line. And as long as you're in the competency range, like you pass, but it's not like you're not giving and given a numerical judgment. You're just like putting a dash on a line is that right that's correct yep so the line it's just marked by it will have novice at one end intermediate in the middle and it will have entry level um and we get descriptions of what it would look like to be at each level and we get examples based on um, what part of competency that you're assessing um so yes you need to get you need to be close enough to the entry level point in order to pass yep and then five million questions. No know, worries. Like Ashida always talks about the big nine, and I can't rattle them off, but you know, dysphagia, um, fluency, I'm all those big nine. Yep. Is there a similar thing in Australia where your the competencies are based on different areas? Yes, there are. Um, I can't remember all of them as well, but yeah, things like voice and fluency and yep. speech and language. Um, yes, so students do need to um, mark those off. The thing is, though, in reality with placements, you don't always get experience um, across all of um, those different areas because um, you're also supposed to have you know, experience with assessment as well as delivering rehab, as well as providing education. And again, it's quite dependent on your caseload. So sometimes you need to get creative with the student in helping them figure out how else they can demonstrate that competency if they haven't been able to do it with an actual person. Okay. And then is it difficult to get placements? Like, do you have somebody, are there people at the universities who are responsible for finding placements? Do you find your own placements? How does that work? So there is a person at university and their specific role is to find students' placements. Uh, For as long as I can remember, um, I hear from universities all the time that it's very difficult to find student placements. I think it's getting more and more difficult because we've had a huge increase in the number of speech pathologists, which I think in part is due to the rollout of the NDIS. Um, So we can't even, we can't quite meet demand that's out there at the moment. Um, So more programs uh, are opening up, more graduates. And because a lot of our roles um, is working in private practice, uh, I think it's trickier to get placements there because, you know, taking on students from a financial perspective, there is no benefit. There is usually a loss. So it's really taking on students to benefit, you know, the therapist. And it is, you know, I enjoy taking students because I think it's great for your own personal knowledge and growth, um, but it's not always appealing as a business. And so I believe that um, 
they are struggling at the moment. Now, when I graduated 13 or so years ago, um, students were not under any circumstances allowed to directly contact um, organisations to ask if they could do a placement. I believe that has relaxed because I've had um, a few students that I've known previously reach out to me personally, desperate for a placement. Um, so I think they are relaxing that a little bit just because it is so difficult. Gotcha. Um, okay, so you you do the clinical placements mm -hmm. during your grad or during your bachelor or master's program. Yep. And then do you take a national exam? No. No national exam. The degree is enough. You've been yep. graded on all of these competencies. Yep. Um, which I would argue, like, in the U.S., we have a national exam. And I'm like, why do we need a national exam when we mm -hmm. are already graded on the competencies? Because an exam doesn't really fit speech pathology. Like, it's not a black and white yeah. science. There's a lot of art yeah. to it that needs to be evaluated. So... Okay, so you don't have a national exam, and then you graduate, mm -hmm. and then and then what happens? And then you apply for a job, um, and you can usually you go into a sort of new graduate role, so they'll have a lot more support. But sometimes you can go into a grade one role, which is a step up from a new graduate. Um, but yeah, straight into employment. And when they advertise these jobs, are they advertising them as? new grad or step one is there like a universal system for that um yes it used to be a little bit more universal um usually they will advertise it as a new graduate role yes um and then we have grade ones um, which is a step up from that then we have grade twos and then we have grade threes which is equivalent to senior but it's it, this is consistently used in the public health system, um, but in private practice, they can determine how they, um, I suppose they can determine what the job title is going to be. So you could be a, a senior therapist and, and just have a few years of experience, whereas in the hospital system and according to the award, usually you'd have about seven years before you can um, apply for that role, um, at least you're, unless you're very competent and then you can um Put in an application but at the moment it's yeah it's not universal okay and then i'm gonna ask this because i'm sure everybody listening is maybe gonna want to know this but like are, are you comfortable talking about like do you pay for health insurance like how does your health care system work in australia i know you've mentioned that there's a private part of it and a public part of it just yep. tell us, I think it would be helpful just from like an everyday person, like how you live in Australia and seek healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. Um, so we have yes, public health system, which is Medicare, um, but we also have private health as well. So if you're over 31 and you're earning a certain amount of money, I can't remember what the cap is, or I'm going to guess maybe it's 180000 for a couple and maybe it's around 90000 for a single person, thereabouts. Okay. So if you're earning about that much, you should have private health insurance. You should be paying for that. Um, 
And if you don't pay for that, then you get charged extra. Um, you get taxed extra. It's called the Medicare levy surcharge. Um, so and do you know what I that just, surcharge is or like what an average healthcare plan would cost per month? Um, I'm not sure how much private health would cost. I've been, I think someone's thrown around a figure that maybe it's a couple of thousand dollars per year potentially. Um, okay per person i'm not sure if that's accurate um yeah the average i just googled this so this is an australian website that's saying about 250 dollars a month okay yeah does that seem kind of more than a few grand a year yeah right yeah no that sounds about right um so i should have private health insurance but I've just been lazy in in getting onto it which means that I'm actually paying extra with the Medicare levy surcharge so I think the standard surcharge might be around 1.5% um, of my income or everyone's income so that goes towards actually funding Medicare um, and then I'm paying extra I'm not even sure how much extra I'm paying maybe it's an extra one percent on top of that because I don't have private health um if I did get private health it would work out to be that I'm paying about the same but I would get obviously the added benefits of having private health if that makes sense and what are those added benefits just like oh really not enough to make you do it <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe shorter wait times for services, okay. um, you know, if I needed surgery or, or things like that. I guess being a younger person and being healthy, I, I don't need a lot of medical services right now. Um, so I just sort of, I go to my GP as needed. Um, a lot of GPs will bulk bill, um, which essentially means that it's fully funded by Medicare. Um more and more um, practices, I think, are, are going private, um, so it's not as common, um, but that's definitely for people who are, have a low income, then they can access a, a bulk build service where they don't need to pay to go and see their GP. Um, but let's say if they needed a surgery that wasn't urgent, they would be on a wait list for a very long time, whereas if you have private health, I think you can access that quicker. I see. Okay. Oh, yeah, $90,000 per individual or $180,000 per family. Yeah. So if you make less than 90000 what does it look like? Um, let's, like say, I said, GP. Let's, say somebody, let's say somebody has a stroke. What would be the yep. difference in care between private and public? Um, so with private... Mm, Now, I'm not actually I'm not actually sure because a lot of the clients that I would see post stroke when I was working um, in the community and in now patient setting as well, um, they're still eligible for NDIS funding. So they get their own funding package where they can purchase the services that oh, yeah, they need. They have a disability at that point. So yes, then they're that's in a right. different category. Okay. Yeah. And I haven't worked in an inpatient setting for quite a while. So I'm not quite sure what the difference in care is in the inpatient setting, sure. but perhaps that's that's where the difference might be. Um, I do know that just um, in general, Australia does have quite good health care, even if you don't have private health insurance. So yeah, I'm not immediately aware of the, the big differences um, yeah. for someone like that. I just think like when you live in the United States and the whole healthcare debate comes up and we look at other countries, like 
there's there tends to be this like dramatized image of everybody else in all these other countries just waiting years and years and years to see a doctor and I just I don't Mm. think that's the reality and so I think that I mean it's just oh go ahead I think it can be if you're waiting for something that's not considered urgent, but I think for urgent conditions and people have had a brain injury and stroke and things like that, um, you know, services um, tend to happen fairly quickly and they get access to that um, without needing to to pay for those services. Because I have heard about the US um, and needing to pay when you go into hospital or paying when you have a baby or you go to emergency and you have to pay. Um, I'm not aware of needing to pay for any, like, I had my baby in hospital, in a public hospital. I, I didn't need to pay for that. If I go to emergency, I don't need to pay for that. Um, so, yeah, I think it is quite different. Yeah. 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 I mean, this could be a whole other platform, <laughs> just talking about healthcare and the systems that we have. But, yeah, we have a very, very broken system that benefits, like financially benefits very, very few people mm-hmm. who sell mm-hmm. insurance programs. And the money that is spent on subsidizing those and tax breaks and all that, that could just be spent on the public health care system. Yeah. And like we wouldn't have a lot of the issues that we have. But that's my own personal opinion. And I guarantee <laughs> you that many people listening to this probably disagree with me. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you don't have any sort of like ASHA has this clinical fellowship year where you have to have a night, they call it a year, but it's really nine months because that's how mm-hmm. long a school year is. Okay. And there's no like evidence to show that nine months means anything. It's just how long mm-hmm. a school year is. So they have to like have supervised hours um, okay. during their first nine months of working. But Australia doesn't have that. It's just you, you're, you're evaluated based on those competencies. You get your degree. Yep. And then you can choose to pay for the certification if you need it or not. Yep. And then you get your job. Yes. Um, the new graduate year, you would have more support than um, any other year, but we don't, there's no requirement for um, a certain number of supervised hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then how do people in Australia feel about Speech Pathology Australia? Are they in support? Are they indifferent? Take it or leave it? Hate it? Um, general vibe. General vibe. Speech I feel like people don't have a strong opinion one way or the other that I know of. Now, it's funny because when I posted um, this question to my Instagram story. Um, also, yesterday. your handle is at Dysphagia oh, Community, right? That's right, at Dysphagia Community. So yeah. if people want to find you, at Dysphagia yeah. Community. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually got the most replies I've ever gotten on any of my stories. Usually I maybe get one or two people commenting um, on my story in words. Usually I'll just get a reaction and emoji. Um, but I've had 11 people um, reach out to me so far wanting to know, okay, how do they get um, this status without being a member or just being really surprised saying, really, I didn't know this. Um, so, And I started a conversation with another species here in Australia and it seems like some of us are sort of keeping up with the conversations that you all are having over in the US about the CCCs. And I think it's making us reflect a little bit more on our organisation. Um, so there's, you know, maybe some quiet conversations happening, but definitely nothing out in the open um, like you're doing, which I think is great. Um, so I would say 
traditionally my feeling is that people have been, you know, rather indifferent towards Speech Pathology Australia. Um, and I, I don't get a general That's a lot of moment. money to feel indifferent. Like if I had to write a check for over $500 every year, I would be like, where is this going? Probably because I'm writing over that amount every month in health insurance. But like, <laughs> I would want to know where is it going? What is the money doing? Like, why do I have to pay this every year? All the questions that we're asking right now about the CCC, but sounds yeah. like. And look, I might I might be wrong and it's just the, the speeches that I've spoken to. Um, and I guess because we're not having these open conversations, I guess I really don't know. Um, but that's just my feeling if I think about, you know, the the small number of conversations I've had with my colleagues and, and the general vibe. Um, I don't know if it's an Australian thing sometimes, you know, we get told this is what you need to pay and so we kind of just pay it without thinking too much about it. But I don't know, maybe that's going to change. So one question that we get a lot is, mm -hmm. but do I need my C's if I move abroad? And basically the answer to that is like, no. I mean, to clarify, like ASHA does not regulate the world. Mm -hmm. like, ASHA does not regulate international standards for speech pathology. Mm -hmm. They do not regulate government requirements anywhere, including the United States. ASHA has nothing to do with, I mean, they try, they try to influence it. They spend money yep. lobbying it, but they don't, they're not directly tied to government regulation. So there's this agreement for the mutual recognition of professional association credentials. Mm -hmm. And so if you have the CCC, you could move to Australia and you could get the certification that Speech Pathology Australia sells yep. easily. And then that would allow you mm -hmm. to work in Australia, but you could also work in Australia without it technically. Yeah. You would just need your degree, right? Yep. You need to pay extra if you want to work with the certification. Do you mean with the certification or sorry, without with the, the certification? certification. But yeah, you, you could, just need to. So that you could. You can work without the certification as well. With your degree and work without. Yeah. And then for people wanting to move to from Australia to the United States, it's ridiculous because like, yes, you could use your Speech Pathology Australia certification to get your ASHA certification. And then you could get a state license, but you can't just move to the US, get your CCC and work. You have to have a state license. Um, and then what's weird about that too, is when you go to the state licensing board, a lot of people have run into issues where because ASHA has spent money lobbying these state licensing boards, the language says something like must have completed a master's level degree in speech language pathology from a university that's accredited by basically ASHA or the CAA. And so then people moving into the United States, they might have everything they need, but because they didn't go mm -hmm. to a CAA accredited, accredited university, they then have to make a verbal or written case to the board to try to get their degree accepted for a state license. Mm -hmm. So okay. it's kind of a mess. And I personally think that the conversation shouldn't necessarily be like, are these certifications exchangeable, but governments should be talking to each other and governments should be making plans of what that 
um, competency and what those requirements should look like. Because at the end of the day, these certifications, they're just products. Mm -hmm. They're benefiting these organizations financially. Mm -hmm. Um, And as speech pathologists, if we truly want like mobility across states within the United States, we need to figure out interstate compact. And then if if we want mobility across borders, we need to figure out an international compact um, and Mm -hmm. not be relying on these certifications to do that. But again, just my personal opinion. Lots of personal opinions today. <laughs> I had a thought as you were um, you were mentioning that because I did have a look to see what actually the jobs are saying at the moment. So I went and had a look at like the last fifteen jobs that have been posted for speech pathologists, um, and there's really a mix in terms of what they're saying is required. So some will say that they just you just need a bachelor or a master's degree um, in speech pathology. Most of them say you need to be a current member of Speech Pathology Australia, um, but then a few of them say that you need to have eligibility for Speech Pathology Australia membership. Um, Now, I I went to have a look back at all of my old applications from before 2014 because I've kept all of them, so I know what the selection criteria were for the jobs. So I have 14 applications back when you had to apply to multiple places to get a job, whereas it's not the same now. Um, Only one of those jobs I applied for required me to have SPA membership. So they all used to say that you just needed to be eligible for Speech Pathology Australia membership, but you didn't need to have it. So I think this this seems to be changing. That's what that tells me. Yeah, I mean, that's similar language to a lot of the state regulations that say ccc or equivalent and Mm -hmm. i i do think there's some force in the government that's they don't like attaching themselves and i'm speaking about the u.s government like they don't like attaching themselves to certification products because they know Mm -hmm. they can change on a whim you know they're completely reliant on this external organization to define their own requirements and they don't like being put in that position and so that's what I've seen with a lot of state licensing board requirements is that equivalency language. So they're not completely wrapped up in somebody else's certification business. Yeah. Um, There's something else I just want to correct as well that I said before. Um, So I just mentioned before that um, the NDIS stated that or states that you need to be a certified practicing speech pathologist in order to, to bill um, I believe that stipulation is for people who are registered NDIS providers because um, you can also be an unregistered provider as well and still bill the NDIS. And actually the vast majority of people who um, do, who are providers are not registered. So I had a look at the stats and it's between 85 and 90% of providers are unregistered, which would technically mean that you don't need to have um, the status in order to to build that. I just wanted to correct that. Huh. So, so help me understand. Would that mean like they're they're working in a facility that is registered? Like the facility is registered, uh, or so- like what's the benefit of being registered? Um, I think the main benefit of being registered it's just meant to provide an assurance to um, NDIS clients that you're getting a quality service and that all the therapists are meeting a minimum standard because the client gets the funding package. I think the NDIS 
is changing. I think they're making some announcements at the moment. Um, but they were given a funding package. It could be a total of $50,000 for the year. It could be $200,000 for the year. And they're able to spend that money however they want. So they might say, okay, I want to use 20 hours for speech. I want to use 10 hours for physio. I want to go to a day the, program three days a week. The person gets to decide that. The person the gets government's to decide like, that. Okay, you have this disability. Here's your bucket yep. of money. Yep. Wow. And they get to choose their providers. So, yes, being registered um, is meant to provide them with assurance that you're getting a quality service. But, yeah, only 10 to 15% of providers are, are registered. I think it's quite costly. Okay. Oh, interesting. So they're using the certification as a way to vet people, even though mm. the degree is enough. <laughs> and then they're charging yeah. more money. But it sounds like consumers don't really put a lot of stock in if you're registered or not. Well, I'm not sure. There is one, um, there's one caveat to that because NDS is complicated and I'm not sure if yep. anyone fully understands it here in Australia and they're always changing it <laughs> and tweaking it. I mean, I think it's a great thing. A lot of people have access to funding that didn't have access before, um, but there's still things that sort of, yeah, that need to be tweaked. But you can manage your NDIS plan in, in different ways and there's three different ways. One of the ways is NDIA managed um, and if you do have a plan that's NDIA managed, you are restricted to just using registered NDIS providers in that case. Um, but the other two types of plans, you can use whoever, you can choose whoever you want. And managed, does that mean that they're deciding how the money is spent or what does managed mean? Oh, so, um, for example, if you want to self-manage your own plan, then you just you make all the decisions, you choose the providers, you pay the bills, the invoices, things like that. Um, if you want to be plan managed, you um, employ a plan management agency and that person um, will sort out all of the payment funds, everything needs okay, to so go through them. Literally managing it. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's like a whole other world. It's a whole other yeah. beautiful, amazing world that I look at from across <laughs> the ocean like why can't we have that but I, I know I know that I'm that sounds it's not that simple every system has its problems and challenges yeah. and it's not like there's a perfect system out there just waiting to, for everybody to latch onto it but right it's not um, without its faults and it's it's undergoing a, an overhaul I think because the they didn't predict it was going to cost this much and I don't think it's sustainable the way that it's running so yes um current overhaul is on the way yeah gotcha okay I know you have to get to work so <laughs> what else should we know about speech pathology in Australia in general or specifically or things that you would like to see changed um well I have a question for you before I um get into that if that's okay I just wanted to know a little bit more about how or what you have to demonstrate in order to get your CCCs, because I, I was interested to know if it's similar or different to what we have to do in Australia to get the certification. Um, yeah. So you have to have a master's degree from a university that's accredited by the CAA, and the Council yeah. for Academic Accreditation is run by ASHA. And you have to, in that time, you have to accumulate 400 clock hours of supervised clinical work 
mm-hmm. by somebody who pays for the CCC. Mm-hmm. And then you have to complete um, the national exam called the Praxis, which is run. I mean, the Praxis, they write all of the tests for all of the teachers in the United States. So we're, we're kind of like crammed into the teacher test, basically. I mean, they're SLP questions, but it's run by that company. Mm-hmm. And then you have to do that nine months of clinic, like supervised work. So you're, it's your first job. You're getting paid. You're probably getting paid less because people think they can pay these clinical fellows less money. Um, and the supervision is really like chickens basically like you don't have to be in the same facility you just have to like the supervisor has to observe them for a certain handful of hours and then provide feedback over the course of nine months and that all has to be documented and then that all gets sent to asha and then you pay like 512 bucks or something and you get your initial certification and then the only way to maintain it is to pay 199 every year and do yeah. 10 hours of professional development every year. And do you need to submit evidence of the professional development? Nope. Okay. They do. They theoretically do random audits. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that part, it, that's the same as, as here. So in order to meet the certified practicing status, one thing is you need to have demonstrate recency of practice. So just making sure that you have been working for X amount of time oh, um, recently. Oh, so we don't have that. So like ah, somebody okay. could get their CCC, they could go off and do something else, whether it's have a kid or trap the world or mm-hmm. do some other job for 20 years. And as long as they're paying that 200 bucks every year, like they could re-enter the ah. field with no questions asked. Okay. Yep. Now we have that recency of practice. And then the other thing is um, we need to do a certain number of hours in terms of professional development. Um, so I believe it's 20 hours of professional development that we need to do. Um, but yes, we don't, we don't need to submit evidence of that. Um, we just need to tick a box declaring that, yes, we have done it. And, and then we have the certification. Um and we have random audits as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And I was thinking about the price tag that you guys have to deal with. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, there's people, there's SLPs in the U.S. who have to pay for the CCC. And then they have to pay for a state license. And then they also mm-hmm. have to pay for some education department piece of paper. So it's like, I bet a lot of SLPs in the U.S. are probably paying the same amount just to different people but yeah, still, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And yeah, I've, you know, had different opinions on how much I've found it useful over the years, depending on what role I've been in. So when I started in a private practice role where I was building up the speech pathology team, um, I found it quite helpful to be a member and have access to all of those resources in doing that. Um, and at the moment, um, I've found it, it's been, it's been good in the sense that, they do provide a fairly large discount to members um, for their professional development events, but I guess they can set the price however they want and, and make it more appealing right. for members. Um, Cause I, I just had a look at some of the most recent PDs they've got at the moment. So there's one PD that is $1,080 for members. Um, 
at $1,620 for non-members. Um, there's another PD that's $49 for members, but $99 for non-members. Um, so there is a fair price difference between member and, and non-member, um, which, yeah, obviously makes it more appealing to try and get that discount. Otherwise, you're paying a lot more. Um, and it's been variable, I would say, in terms of, you know, the quality of PDs um, over the years. During COVID, there wasn't a lot, I found, um, particularly relevant to my caseload. Um, but lately, there have been a few good ones. Um, so I'd say that's probably what I get the most out of my membership these days is that discount to access the PD run by staff. Yeah. Solid marketing on their part. Yeah. I was also thinking like because speech pathology in Australia and ASHA, they, they're both in this situation where they're, they have all these conflicts of interest. Like mm -hmm. I think ASHA, I can't, I obviously can't speak on their behalf, but I, I wonder if part of their, justification for the certification is like collectively as a field these annual fees are helping fund you know the practice analysis and the competency standard rewrites and all this stuff but I'm like is it I mean I I, I just think that university accrediting bodies should be self-sustaining and if it really does cost you know tens of millions of dollars to accredit universities, then that cost mm -hmm. should be on the shoulders of universities. Like that should be its own organization that is self-sustaining, that charges universities, whatever it costs to accredit those universities. And then there should be a separate body that's just membership where all they do is mm -hmm. that they're responsible to the needs of the members and they have to earn that trust and respect and they have to advocate on behalf of members the way that members want them to. And that should be its mm -hmm. own self-sustaining thing. Mm -hmm. And then if, you know, if a profession wants a certification for whatever reason, which we all know, I don't think is necessary, but if, if the profession wants that, that should be its own body. Like all of these should be completely separate and the budgets should be separate and the, and the way that money is spent should be completely transparent and yeah. they all need to sustain their own, interests and their own financial needs so mm -hmm. anyway oh, back to your question. another soapbox <laughs> yeah <laughs> no sorry I didn't answer your question from before when you said what do you want to see change about speech pathology definitely don't have time to mention everything that I would like to see change but it's just it's definitely something that I'm super passionate about I think I can list off a few things I think firstly for me I think I would really like to see a change in the training programs. So if I think about how I was taught to do speech pathology um, in areas like dysphagia, for example, um, and best practice now with everything that I'm learning, it is so completely different. And I do understand that universities have a certain amount of money and maybe they can't update the curriculum every single year, but I feel that there is a huge gap, especially when I was working um, in a, a different role, in a senior role in private practice, and we we're getting new graduates come through, and they just did not feel prepared um, for the caseload that they got, essentially. And I think that the training programs that we have, because I'm still getting feedback from your, your new graduates that are coming through, and in a lot of way, they're not changing. I think it's really focused towards the speech pathologist who is working 
in a hospital setting, essentially. Um, it's not really tailored to therapists who are working in the community because a different approach is required for that. It's not tailored to therapists who are working with clients with developmental disability. It's m- very big focus on, on ABI to a lesser extent, progressive neuro. So that's something that I would love to see change over time. I think also just more respect for our profession, better understanding. Um, I got really tired of trying to constantly advocate for our profession to someone who was not a speech pathologist. And it can be really difficult to explain what we do and the complexities of what we do. And I don't think a lot of us fully understand that ourselves and are starting to realise and reflect um, the complex nature of what we do and perhaps we weren't um, prepared well enough for that. Um, So I would love for people just to understand what we do a lot more. Um, I'd love more guidelines as well. Um, I talked to my friend who's a GP and, you know, they're seeing a certain condition or they want to check medication. They'll just click guidelines. What do the guidelines say on this, on this? I don't feel like we have a set of guidelines to go to. We have a few random guidelines here and there, all in different places, but there's not like a central point. And we spend so much time trying to deliver evidence-based practice because the evidence is all over the place Um, and more realistic KPIs as well. We are not physios. Um, We can't just go in, do a bit of exercise, get out. I know it's more complicated than that. No offence to physios. Um, But the kind of preparation that we need to do before a language-based session or a communication session is enormous. We can't do back-to-back sessions if we're doing um, language sessions and cognitive-based sessions because that is draining. Talking to someone for hours and hours is not the same as doing a physical activity back-to-back. So I just wish that we would stop getting compared or put in the same box as other other therapists when their disciplines are so completely different. Um, I have loads more, but that's all I have time to give. And that's what's off the top of my head. It's so interesting because I think, I mean, I'm just, I was nodding my head the whole time and it's like, these are all kind of universal issues for speech pathology right now. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't think as speech therapists, we can wait or big daddy asha or big daddy whoever <laughs> to like come in and fix these problems for us like we can join forces and we can find ways to fix these problems ourselves at a local level and we can connect with people across the globe and we can continue having these conversations and yeah keep working to fix slp yeah I mean, can I say thank you so much to you and Jeanette for creating this because it's really opened my eyes. There's a lot of things I've been thinking about over the years as I get more experienced and really reflecting and wondering, is it just me thinking this way? And both of you have voiced so many things that I've been concerned about or, you know, at the forefront of what I want to change as well. So Thank you so much for being so brave and just putting it out there because you're right. I think it it doesn't actually seem to be just concentrated to one particular country. This is a, it's a worldwide thing for speech pathologists. I think we're feeling quite similar about things. So it's, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for engaging with us on Instagram. It's fun to meet you sort of in person. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully I can see you next time I'm in Australia. Where are you? I'm based in Victoria, so down the bottom of Australia. So if you, yep, make it to Victoria, let me know. Yeah, yeah. Last time I was there, I drove from, let's see if I get this right, Melbourne to Brisbane. Yeah, that's a long drive. Yeah, it was really fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. And then people, if they want to ask you more questions, is that okay if they reach out to you on Instagram at Dysphagia Community? Well, yeah. please do. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's nearing the afternoon for me and you're just getting your day started. So yep. good luck with your day at work today. Thanks, Megan. Have a good afternoon. Thanks. All right. Bye.